Hello and welcome to the TetraCast, RPG Sites' seemingly weekly podcast. It's finally here. We are a day after the official release of Final Fantasy VII Remake. Woo. You guys need to Woo. be excited. Though, obviously... We're not getting it until next week. Yeah, that's where I'm going. So, uh, obviously, it's been out depending on your where you live, whether you're getting it digitally, you just were able to get it, you know, two, like a day and a half ago. Some people were able to grab it early from, you know, mom and pop stores. But then if you're getting it from places like Amazon in the US, you might not have it until early next week. So uh, this isn't going to be a Final Fantasy focused cast. We'll talk about it a little bit, but um, we'll, we'll give some time for people to get to sink their teeth into it if they actually receive the game itself. But uh, I am your host, Brian Vitali, and joining me today are George Foster. Hi, everyone. Have you doing well? Adam Vitali. I'm doing good, George. I missed you in the last couple casts. Oh, that's <laughs> me nice. Too. And uh, James Galizio. Hey. I'm always like a half beat away from like forgetting all your last names. I'm like, George, George. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, we're all here. We've all okay, been... It's close enough. We've done enough of these now. Yeah. Uh, you think I would have it after you know a few repetitions, but still have to think a little bit about it. Uh, so, it's... Speaking you know, of, about... we, we should really change it from seemingly weekly to weekly, because I don't think we've... No, I don't want to... I don't, I, don't, I don't want to commit to that. <laughs> the, minute, the minute we the minute we call it weekly, we're gonna have a week where we can't go, and I'll just be I'll be like morally crushed, and I'll never recover. <laughs> Cuss. So it is uh, April what eleventh. So the official day for Final Fantasy VII remake was yesterday. Uh, we will talk about that a little bit, but we'll probably and uh, we don't have this planned out like robustly, but we'll probably do like a, a big spoiler cast. Once we have three, four, five people that have all beaten the game, want to talk about every detail, but that won't be this cast, so do not worry. Um, outside of that, it's honestly been kind of a like a smaller week for for specific news stories. We did talk a little bit about like delays and cancellations in terms of events and games and Last of Us last week, and this week we've got a few more. Even outside the world of sports, like I guess the UFC finally decided to cancel fights. It just it's just we're still on that upswing i feel where things aren't getting better yet they're they're, they're getting things are still in the process of turtling up and shutting down so that's where we are and that's why we're doing this podcast remotely like we always do so you know what's funny get... though go ahead H hearing about uh delays then we also got the news that cyberpunk wasn't delayed yeah Isn't that it weird? seems like yeah so a few different places obviously have been really strongly kind of advertising how they've ramped up the remote capabilities. I'm thinking about how Cyberpunk early on said they've transitioned to work from home and they're go they're basically trying to be as productive as they were. I think Larian, the uh, Divinity Original Sin Studio, posted like some similar stuff. And then like for instance, outside of video games, Funimation posted like a couple tweets about how they're now recording episodes of like My Hero Academia like remotely now. So it's actually kind of interesting to see all these companies kind of uh, shift to this new paradigm. And then you kind of wonder if some percentage of that is going to be carried forward where they'll realize, hey, we don't we don't have to do this. You know, we don't have to meet up or meet in person to do a lot of this stuff. We can do this remotely. The technology is there. The know how is there. 
So I wonder if that's and that, even outside the world of like entertainment, like people's regular jobs, people have, who have started working from home, if they're going to be, be able to do that more often. It's just something to think about. I don't really have any more mm. anything more enlightening to say. All right. So before we get into the couple of news tidbits, we're going to go about what we've been playing this week. So uh, I will go last here. But I will start with, uh, let's start with George, since it's been a couple weeks. About You've got uh, four games listed here. I don't know if you'll be able to get up to all four of them, but what's, what's <laughs> the one you've been, I think there's one maybe in particular you want to talk about more than the others? Yeah, so I've, I think I've, I missed last week, I know for sure. Uh, I'm not sure if I missed the week before, but that has given me it has plenty too, of time yeah. to, yeah, it might have been too, actually. Oh, that's weird. I've missed you, you guys. Um, I've been playing quite a lot of stuff i have a i have a bit of a problem where even if i have a backlog of about four different games i'll still be like yeah no i need need to i need to buy the most recent game i need to go get persona 5 royal with no intention of playing it for at least a couple of weeks we've Um, all been um, in the fomo bug oh it's awful it it hits me the worst because it's not even just like oh i need to play this game it's like i need to get this game in its limited edition steelbook like I, i can't experience it any other way um so sitting on my shelf how's, how's just, that how's that death stranding collector's edition baby looking i don't want to talk about it but i'm literally looking at it right now and <laughs> I, I regret no, actually no i don't regret i love it but oh god <laughs> <laughs> anyway um so i have about four different games in different levels of completion uh i know we're going to talk about it more in the coming weeks but i think i just want to quickly say or focus in on <clears throat> Final Fantasy VII Remake because as someone who yeah, has I mean, never experienced it, uh, we can talk original... about it. It's just that I don't want to be like, here's how it ends. Like, let's, let's just talk about yeah, like, yeah, the initial no, impressions, the uh, stuff like that. So I am absolutely enamored with it. I, I cannot say enough good things about it. And it originally wasn't going to be like that for about the first three or four hours. I was like, oh no, like, did playing the demo just kind of like, hype me up and i'm just not gonna enjoy it and then i hit i hit a certain point in the game where i was like actually no this is probably going to be my favorite game of the year i just i cannot stop thinking about it i cannot stop playing it whenever i have the chance to play something and god i just love it i haven't i haven't even got like probably halfway you have not played the original nope i am completely new i i've always heard how good it is i think you might yeah i think you and james are the two people on the site who haven't played it and that's just going to be an interesting uh, – uh, what's the word? It's going to be an interesting perspective to look at because I see so many people talk about how they're, you know, be, they're getting, like, emotionally charged by listening to, like, these remixes of their favorite themes or seeing these new – these old locations, like, painstakingly recreated. And you don't have that, yet you still have the response you do, which is kind of a testament to how the quality is independent of the, the nostalgia. So – for full um, like disclosure, I did review this for the website, and there's also a whole bunch of guides that a lot of people on the team put together. And you might be able to read my review to see like my full thoughts on Final Fantasy VII Remake. But but uh, I do want to say that for this game, it's probably the most fun that I've had playing a Final Fantasy game in a long time. Uh, just just the pure interaction of the player and the game, like independent of story, independent of nostalgia, independent of voice acting or whatever. 
it's it's i feel like it's just the perfect system in terms of combat in terms of even just like how linear it is like that's i don't feel like that's a bad word for this game mm. uh just i i think i i made this comparison in my review where i said it borrows from like a real time with pause game which seems like that's kind of like that's from like the other side of the genre pool but mm. i'm almost like if you're trying to adapt a turn-based game to a more action system it feels like that's just like the perfect way to do it it's not an action game so people who like one thing that i saw uh people describing is that for instance when you dodge in this game there are no invincibility frames there are no uh like there are no style points that both really threw me literal, off honestly both both literal and just like metaphorical so you'll dodge and it doesn't actually move your character very far it's not a free like get out of jail card oh you see the wind of, of the enemy attack dodge and you avoid it it's really only meant to avoid like big telegraphed get out of the area now or you'll be stunned um you're more inclined to block and parry and when you block you still take like a little fragment of damage and when you see those damage numbers ticking through your characters like clouds buster sword or whatever it almost feels like you're playing the game wrong but in my estimation you're not it's so it's i think people who play it like i've tried to play it like bayonetta or whatever might feel off at first but if you try to play it instead just like a here is the turn-based classic atb system adapted to real time it's it is real time with pause or it's it's real time with optional slowdown when you pull up the menu i guess i'll put it that way that's actually really interesting to hear you say that as someone who hasn't played this game yet because this sounds maybe kind of dumb but like i think one of the biggest differences like functionally between a turn-based game and like an action rpg is that overall in one of those you can dodge in another one of those you can't really dodge Mm. like based on you can maybe in a turn-based game based on like probability or whatever but it's not uh it's not something that you had direct control over um just vaguely speaking in action game one of the key things you can do is dodge like learn moves and move yourself but in turn-based games you can't so it's just kind of interesting to hear you say that how you there is a dodge but it's not quite what you would expect in an action game so i think for for me and again this is gonna george mentions kingdom hearts on a podcast yeah yeah but going into it as someone who's like oh namora probably play a little bit like kingdom hearts and learning that dodging doesn't really help you that much and blocking doesn't stop damage but uh, negate it, it took me a while to get used to that. But as soon as I realized that you're not going to go into a fight with zero damage, you're going to have to take some damage, you're going to have to heal up, buy those potions and actually use them, that's when the combat started to click for me. And that's when I really started loving it. And then another thing that's kind of key is that you cannot like cancel out of a dodge. So Cloud's animations, the less char- the other characters maybe less so, but his animations aren't rapid. He's got to swing that sword, and it's you can't just say, "Oh, oh crap, the enemy is about to hit me, and I'm in the middle of my swing. I'm gonna dodge." Instead of canceling out of your animation, it only queues up like after it, like it like goes into like a, a buffer. So you can't just say like in some, in action games, which I'm not an expert on, admittedly, a lot of times if you press that dodge button, even if you're in the middle of the animation and you've timed it well and you know like how long the invincibility window is, you're playing that game properly when you don't take damage from the hit. And then obviously if you're playing a game like Kingdom Hearts, 
you see people put up these i just beat yozora on hard mode with no damage because they know all the tells <laughs> they they've practiced all of the uh they know exactly where to position themselves and exactly every moment. And I think you'll get an extent of that in Final Fantasy VII. I am certain that within a month you'll say, here's the final boss on hard mode, you know, no heals or whatever. Um, and you can't, like, I'm not saying the dodge isn't useless. It's just, it's less of a get out of jail free card than it might be in some other games. Because if you dodge, for instance, there's, there's a lot of games where because of the iframes, you can dodge, for instance, like into the enemy. You'll avoid the damage, and yet you'll still be in position to, to hit them as soon as the, the opening's there. Where in this game, you got to get out of the way because there are no iframes. So you got to dodge away to, like, towards the camera, angled away. And then if you've avoided the attack, then you've got to reposition yourself. So it just it just feels a bit different. It's useful. You can still engage in the combat with the dodging, but it just... I, okay, I, I want to back up. I'm talking so much about this game's like systems because that is where I was the most enamored, especially mm. on hard mode. Like I haven't even talked about like the story and stuff. So let me like pass it back over to you. Like how do you, how do you feel just about like what's been presented to you so far in terms of the narrative? Well, before I do that, I just want to say that to hear Brian mirror exactly sort of my thoughts on the on the combat situation of Final Fantasy VII Remake is good because he is the site's resident expert on Final Fantasy VII Remake, and if you haven't seen his review on RPGSite.net, you should definitely go check it out, and all of his amazing guide work. Um, Thank you. But the narratively, it, it's sort of incredible. I, I, was saying, I was saying to my stepdad uh, today, I think, who has played the original, and he's playing this, and he's like, oh my god, there's so much, like I remember, there's so much new. And I said to him that even though I have no nostalgia for it, there are these weird moments where I'm like, I, I can feel what I think other people would have felt back then. And the game does such a good job with its characters and like the world. It it feels so lived in and like real. It's just, I, I don't really spend time looking around in game environments. It's, it's one of my biggest problems. I'm just like, oh, just get me to the gameplay. Like, uh, let me experience how the game plays. And I don't spend much time like, oh, that's a cool that's a cool detail in the world, but Final Fantasy VII Remake, just like, you owe it to yourself to stop and take it in. Yeah, I've, like, for instance, the very first time that that's evident is Chapter 2. So, Chapter 1 is the original, original bombing mission. I think anyone who's played the demo knows what that is. Chapter 2 is basically the aftermath, and in the original game, it kind of goes by in a flash. But in this game, you're like running through the, the streets, and people are like panicked and scared, and it's just it seems like an obvious addition but it's like wow this it just really like carries the weight of what you've done which you could then tether into this game has you're you just you just committed a terrorist act and the game doesn't say like you're 100 percent justified in everything you did it actually does kind of play with the idea a little bit and we'll go into detail on that maybe in a later time but that's kind of the very first instance where it's like you just damaged people's livelihoods by blowing up this reactor and you have scared the shit out of them. And that's not every addition to the game is as impactful, but I do think that by having one of the better ones early on in chapter two, it's, it's a good, uh, it's a good first kind of swing at when they talk about this being an expanded retelling of the game, there it is right there. And the, go ahead. The vibe I'm getting so far and, I have no idea what's coming ahead, but as someone who has a, a a pretty good understanding of what happened in the original, just from sort of osmosis and 
of course, the the biggest thing that ever happened in Final Fantasy VII is like pretty common knowledge now. The vibe I'm getting so far is that they're going to change things up a lot. I don't think they can follow the the same route they did all those years ago. I think they're going to have to change it to make it as exciting. Now, don't tell me if I'm right or wrong on that, but if I am right later in a spoiler cast or something, then, you know, uh, just I said it here first. Yeah, well, I think the game, without without deliberately going along that path, you got to be careful here. Um, the yeah, game this is dangerous. <laughs> makes, yeah, the, the game kind of makes it apparent, I think, pretty early on that this isn't one-to-one. Now, the extent Ooh, and, and the way that... I mean, I it, I don't mean to, like, dance around it, but I just think it, it makes it pretty clear pretty early. Um, yeah, but, well, that's the vibe I get there, from what I've heard. There, 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 there are certain elements as early as Chapter 2s and 5 where you're like, I, I think anyone who knows anything, even through osmosis, there's, like, there's it's very clear that they're... That they're that this game is going to be creative in how it decides to unfold its narrative. Now, you have yet to learn exactly how and why that's implemented, but I'll leave it there. That was some incredible restraint. I got to say I, I could it's feel difficult. You I, 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 can, I can I can already I can already feel someone like, like I'm someone who actually personally doesn't really mind spoilers. I just think it comes with the territory, but I know some people like obviously do. So you got you got to play with the yeah. most careful mindset in mind. Yeah, let me just jump in and say, like, I haven't played this game yet, but I did look at the spoilers. And, you know, to me, just looking at, like, by by looking at the spoilers, I mean, like, comments in some, like, quick notes on, like, what happens and things like that. And to me, that's not really that meaningful to see, like, those things. I want to see how it's implemented, which I have not seen yet, these things that are spoilers. So that's just the type of person I am. And I think that's kind of what you were getting at. Um, so well, just in general, try, try but I know some people, no, some people don't want to know anything. And if they, if they're that type of person, they're not going to listen to this podcast, but, uh, but I, I think getting that, seeing it is different than reading it. It's like when you write, we, sometimes you'll watch or like a review of like an anime episode or whatever. And the, their review will sometimes just be like, this happens first, this happens second, this happens last. And I'm just like, I don't know, that doesn't, that just feels like, how did it make you feel? How was it designed? Did it, was it foreshadowed properly or did it not need to be because there was an element, you know, some people just feel like the, the things that happen is the most important thing. And I don't, I just don't believe that, but maybe that's just too general and that's kind of getting off topic. I sort of feel because it is interesting to talk about spoilers because we 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 live in a society that they're they're so badly looked upon, uh, and they're they're almost like the whenever a new game is about to come out, I instinctively just avoid looking on Twitter, avoid looking on YouTube. Well, uh, well, yeah. In in this case, I've actually just managed to avoid it, but. Yeah, so I feel like we're, we're, we got to definitely get off this railroad soon. But... Yeah, I, well, I agree. Uh, I think one last thing we should mention is that that last official trailer, like Square Enix is up. no, Square Enix is no stranger to like showing off too much in their Don't trailers. Started, and that last trailer for this game, maybe it's different if you haven't played it, but if you have played it that last trailer it's not even just like i don't think it's even just like hinting or teasing spoilers it actually just shows off like hey want to see a spoiler here it is and so it's kind it's, of it's 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 
but to go back to impressions, I, I'm so on edge right now. Oh yeah, that's why I'm trying to go back to just like general gameplay impressions or whatever. So I talked about the combat yeah, a bit. I think it's really good. Uh, one thing that I have seen is like, so obviously you play this game up to a party size of three, just like many RPGs. Uh, but I have seen some people state that they, so you play as Cloud, for instance, and your party members will be Tifa and Barrett. But when you're playing as your one character, the other two will not really do all that much. Some people who are more poetic might say, oh, they're brain dead. The AI, the AI is shit or whatever. And they have a point. They don't do all, they don't like engage a lot of their abilities. They'll, they'll usually kind of like block effectively. They'll, they'll avoid taking like chip damage, I find, but they just won't, they won't really go on the offensive. So I felt like the most effective way to play this game was to almost treat it turn-based, which is kind of where I was going originally. What I mean by that is you're playing as Cloud, you're doing a couple of your like basic operator mode hits to build up your, your gauge, and then let's say you, you throw out triple slash because you're trying to weed down the number of enemies. And then you realize Tifa has a charge. Oh, okay, so I'm going to switch to Tifa or specifically command her to use one of her abilities to bring up the focus meter. Like you can't expect her to do it by then, but it's almost as if you're relinquishing your turn to her. And then you see, oh, Barrett's got some charges, but my health is low. I have to have him throw out a cure. So you switch to Barrett and you maybe do the overcharge shot to, to get some meter back and then you throw out the cure and then you switch back to Cloud. And in a way, it's almost turn-based. And I know that sounds like, eh, is it really? But I, I really no, kind of do I feel that agree. way. It's basically like you see who on your team has the ability to take an action, whether that's unleashing an attack or doing a heal or, or supporting your team. So you switch to that character and you, and you do it. But I think some people who think, oh, this is a, an action party-based RPG, and they play some, like a Tales game where they expect their backline Aerith or whatever to start casting spells on their own, and she doesn't. I think it could potentially be tweaked to where... I, I think there should at least be like a command maybe to say like, I want my team members to focus on this guy or to be... To focus on, you know, stay back and be defensive during this phase of the fight. But I don't feel like that's a huge deficiency because I find that this game feels awesome to play when you're rotating through your characters, you're seeing when you have meter, you're, you're near the stagger limit and you're like, all right, I don't want to use an ability now. I want to wait till that stagger is hit so that I can unleash it then. Or, for instance, in the hard mode playthrough, which unlocks after the, the um, you play through the game originally to the credits, I might have a character with two atb bars uh, and then i'm like i don't want to use these because i want them to have them in case i need to revive or heal so i think it just it has a lot of that tactical feel that i think sometimes is lost in action games where you just like deal damage as quick as, as you can and avoid it with dodging and there you go it feels almost more less less tactical and i feel like this game really kind of marries the two ideas together in a very unique and interesting way I, I agree. I, I think that how they I, I wouldn't want them to change what they've done now because I feel like having it like this does introduce sort of a more tactical thing to more mainstream audiences because a lot of people are going to come into this just because it's Final Fantasy VII Remake and they're going to probably expect an action game but then to have a more strategic element to it I think I think that's good. And like for me I, I don't really play, like I really don't get on with turn-based games that much but i think approaching it as a sort of merge between the two is is really good and it is so much fun once you get to once you finally get into editing your material and equipping spells and changing equipment 
that's what oh, yeah, I haven't best. talked about materia yet. It's the there's so much to it. Game like, is uh, it's not really like the, you haven't played it. The materia system in remake is very very similar to what's in the original. It's not really adjusted all that much. Which and the fact that it is still so uh, versatile in terms of absolutely allowing you to control exactly how you want to format. I want this person to have the access to this spell or have this defensive bonus on their armor or whatever. I think it's just a testament to how ahead of its time the original game was that they really didn't really they didn't need to say like all right how do we modernize this they're just like no let's implement it almost as it was with just a few tweaks the material system is just there's there was plenty of times in hard mode more than normal mode where I'm like okay I've seen how this fight plays out what do I need to slot in my armor or in my weapon to give me the the best edge here and the, that when you when when you lose in a, in a in a fight. You get a game over or you have to reload a checkpoint and when you're going through like the decision making of how to how to best tackle how to best avoid you know the fate that you just you just had with your with your loss or whatever i think that just feels really good and obviously there comes to a point if you fail multiple times in a row where it no longer feels good but just personally i never got to that point for me hearing about this hard mode uh I don't think it sounds very appealing. That that's the only thing that I I can't say for uh, sure because I haven't got that far. But I I don't think that in case you don't know, hard mode removes your ability to use healing items and like and stuff like that, isn't it, Brian? Yeah, and the um obviously enemies do more damage, health bars are improved, but they also do the smart thing where every hard mode should do, and they change a little bit anyways about how fights play out. For instance, and this isn't a spoiler, about halfway through the game you fight the Hell House. It's kind of in a, it's kind of a silly and a goofy fight, but I actually really enjoy it because one, I love how the fight plays out and how it's really spell focused. Um, if you've just been going through the fight using strong cloud buster sword abilities, you're going to struggle there. So I really like how it says, "Hey, you have Aerith in your party. Learn how to use her." <laughs> but in hard mode, it actually tweaks how the fight plays out, its stages or whatever, and I just think like, "Oh, this is really neat." I now I have to factor in these things. But of course, you know, it's not going to be for everyone. Um, I think it's, it's well balanced. I, I think there's no point where it's like, oh, now now this boss in hard mode, his attack is a one-shot KO and you can't avoid it. Like, I don't feel that. But there are some places where it's like, unless you specifically slot your materia in a specific way, you might struggle significantly. And it kind of like railroads you into a specific way of, of fighting that might not feel so good. But I, I think it... I think it does for the most part it, it it's balanced appropriately for a hard mode without feeling like cheap or unfair so you say it's worth going through because the vibe i'm getting I, at the moment is i when i i really fell in love with the battle system once i started playing on hard mode i'll put it that way i liked it beforehand but afterwards i really started like because then you really start saying like how, how am i going to keep my buffs up how am i how am i going to keep my hp up and then obviously with the caveat of since you only have so much MP and you can never refill it through a chapter, that, that affects you both offensively and defensively. An enemy might be weak to Thunder or whatever. They're like, do I want to waste a Thundara on this guy or do I want to save my MP? Can I get by without it? Um, so it almost has like this attrition feeling to it where you're at, the, you're, start, you're at the start of the chapter, you've got a full MP bar, and you're like, how long do I have to be conservative and save this MP and not use it? And then by the time I get to the chapter boss or whatever, you're free to use it. But if you've only got half of it left, you got it. You got to keep some back for like a 
uh, panic revive because you can no longer use the spell. You have to use Phoenix down. Um, I do think it has kind of like this weird resource management sort of system to it, which maybe sounds a little bit out of place, but I thought I kind of enjoyed it. It was an interesting way to implement hard mode without just being like, this enemy now does 3x the damage they did before. Have fun. So it does kind of have this sort of like meet like this resource management i guess is what i just said so i mean i i guess that i'm saying it from from someone who hasn't even finished the game yet so i feel like uh, i haven't mastered the combat system well i don't know if anyone's mastered it but i haven't really even got that good at the combat system yet so maybe when it when i get better i'll be like actually yeah i am ready for hard mode well i think always the best sign of a, of a well-designed system is when you play through a boss fight and you, you implement a strategy or pre a preparation and you you can deliberately tell how it's helping you, how it's assisting you. And then you play through the fight again and you have a much easier time because you know exactly what, what you ex what you want to implement, what you want to, like the strategy that you want to utilize. And I feel like in hard mode that I had, I had that sort of that feeling where, for instance, we talked about Kingdom Hearts. When I first beat the Remind DLC Yuzora, I didn't really have a good feeling for like, why did I win? I just got lucky, I guess, because in Kingdom Hearts, especially in those hard mode, like data battles, I feel like you're at, you're at like your low health half the time. Uh, you've got that blinking lead like siren going and you're just pressing like <laughs> yeah. the aerial dodge cancel and you're just attacking whenever the unit's in front of you. I know people who really learn that system uh, can obviously kind of compartmentalize all of it and they know exactly what they're doing and why. But when I was playing it, even though I played it well enough to win, I never really felt like I was in complete control. I felt like I was kind of being like pulled along on a shoestring, tied around my waist, just like I'm gonna press press it. I'm gonna go ahead. disagree with you slightly because <laughs> oh, like really? that final fight in the DLC, I remember like the first time you try it, you I like I played on critical, and like the first time I tried it, like I died instantly because it's like man, I have no idea what I'm doing. And even like the first heck, ten times you try it, I tried it. Like, I just felt like I had no idea what how I was supposed to fight this guy. But you just kind of keep at it, and eventually, I did learn. Like, okay, when he's doing these abilities, which he kind of this is how he looks when he's doing them, or this is what he says when he's doing them. I know that I have to dodge or block or avoid in this way, or if there's a during these abilities or when his openings start to show up, and I can get some hits in. And then eventually, after like learning the fight, you re you realize over the course of the several dozen attempts that you are learning it and getting better. So, I would have to agree with that. Other. I don't think you can. I don't think you can just right. luck your way through the remind battles. Well, I guess I'll, I'll, just take, I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that one on the cheek. I guess. Uh, like I did play it proud. It's 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 not like I just sloppily got through it on easy mode, but. I just felt like Final Fantasy, I feel more in control and I enjoy that. I don't know if that's just a preference thing. But in Final Fantasy, when I take damage, I'm like, oh, I was a dumbass. I didn't I didn't get out of the way when the Crab Warden specifically said it was going to attack this area. Like, why did I not get yeah, out of the Yeah, I could agree with that. And I, and, I don't mean. And in Kingdom Hearts, I felt like a lot of times I just took damage. I'm like, I don't know why I took damage there. Um, and maybe that's just me not having put as much time into it. That's likely a good a good possibility, but I just I just like the pacing better of Final Fantasy. It maybe it is a notch slower, but I also feel like it's a more deliberate. And part of that manifests in that like how the dodge works, how how you can't cancel out of animations very easily, um, things like that. 
One thing that I also do think is kind of neat is, for instance, Tifa has a bunch of like these martial art abilities that do kind of combo together. And I haven't really messed with it too extensively, but for instance, her unique ability is an uppercut. And then one of her weapon abilities that she learns early on is a dive kick, uh, which normally she jumps up into the air to to then, you know, land down on the enemy and the kicks. But if you do it after the uppercut, they'll chain together without that pause in the center. And there's just stuff like that where like, oh my god, this feels so good to like to implement in this way. It just it just feels so good to play. It's I probably spent like five or six paragraphs early on in the review talking about how I just I enjoyed this playing this battle system so much. And it's so a lot of the as well. Yeah, a lot of the boss fights also do this really smart thing where it's like, hey, we're going to suggest you do it this way. For instance, this robot boss will have a weak point where once it's trying to fire its main cannon at you, if you damage the cannon up during this during this window of opportunity, you will immediately stagger it. But you don't have to do that if you don't have a lot of range ability or whatever. You can just get behind it and then like use your focused hits to just basically it, it'll it'll kind of suggest ways that you should fight enemies. But it doesn't have to, like you don't have to. You're not beholden to like, oh, this enemy is impenetrable unless I do it this way. Another example are like these Shinra troopers who are like hella troopers. They're like flying around in little like jetpacks or whatever, um, and they're weak to wind and thunder. So if you want to, you can just cast those, and uh, you still have to be a little bit careful. It's not like it's not like a free stagger because if you cast the wind while it's moving, you're gonna end up missing it. Things like that. But they also do this thing where they'll try to swoop down and kick you, and if you get out of the way that's actually a good time where you want to use your dodge over a block they'll like when they when they swing like their their leg and they're trying to kick you and they miss they kind of like get off balance and that you can stagger them then so they give like these different windows of opportunities that you can utilize in different ways that just feels like like if you're just if you're just playing the game just only focused on damage those hella troopers are going to be annoying as hell because you'll never get your opportunity to, to hit them but if you're like, okay, I won't be, I won't play offensively now. I'll wait till they do this kick, get out of the way, and then I'm basically you, you've won. As soon as they've missed you and they got staggered, you won. So I, I just love games where it's like, hey, we are going to reward you for playing, you know, conservatively some of the time. It's not just do as much DPS in as little time as possible, and you and you're guaranteed to win. I, I feel like that's a that's a testament of the system at play here. I agree, because I don't think... There hasn't been a single combat encounter where I don't feel like I've got multiple ways to approach it. Even even when I'm at a point where I can't select who I have in my party, I feel like I always have a lot of choice with every character. Like Even though they've all so got their it, specific abilities, yeah. they're all... Yeah. Um, I, I read in our Discord, actually, in a room for this game, people were talking about the Hell House fight. And the Hell House fight, like I mentioned earlier, is supposed to be like a spell-focused fight in a lot of ways because you have access to Aerith, you have access to um, all four elements at that point of the game. Um, there's a lot of parts of the fight where you have to fight at range. So that seems like where it's leaning you to go. But then someone's like, I learned that you can use poison to bypass his shield at this part. And I've just got to like sit in there with my head in my hands like, poison, why didn't I think of that? Like, I'm a dumbass. Why didn't I just think of using poison? And like, I feel like there's going to be, I'm going to watch a video in two weeks of someone fighting another one of the late game bosses. And they're going to be, they're going to use something that I just didn't think of. And I'm going to feel like just absolutely stupid for not doing it. And that is, I think just a testament of a well-designed, carefully considered system where they're just not like, Oh, you're supposed to do this, then this, then this. They're just like, give you like a, an array of options. And they're like, here, go with whichever suits your fancy. 
Um, some are going to work better than others, but we've, we've left the door open for you. And I just think that that's amazing. I'm definitely very excited to see where the Final Fantasy community goes with Remake and what they can discover like that. Because like, it's always uh, cool. Yeah, I'm, look- I'm, looking- I'm looking forward to seeing the YouTube videos. It's like boss so-and-so hard mode, 60 second kill. And yeah. I'm just That'll be tomorrow. To I can- I- I- yeah, I can already see. Well, some people have had the game for like since April 1st. But, oh, yeah. uh, so I'm sure a lot of those already exist and that's why some people have already kind of been spoiled but when I could tell right away in the system that people were going to break it wide open and that's that's cool to me it's not just oh you beat the boss in the way you were intended to in the time you were intended to everyone had the same experience that's not the case I anticipate before we move on uh, I just want to say that to clarify I've actually had access to Final Fantasy seven remake for about a week now uh my copy arrived way way earlier than it should have yeah a lot but, of places in europe and australia were able to get it early right yeah we we i think most people did but in a in a cruel twist of fate i haven't actually had the time to play it like ironically there's there's a game i've wanted for since it got announced to experience it's just it sat at home and i i, I can't play it so i'm catching up i'm getting there so uh, the two ways that this game kind of expands on the original game, we already talked a little bit about like the, the inline story expansion, like in chapter two, where it's the aftermath of the reactor bombing. There's also a new section in like chapter four early on. The reason why I'm bringing the chapters is I'm saying that this is, this is early stuff. This isn't late stuff. But you spend more time with the Avalanche trio, um, Biggs, uh, Wedge, and Jesse. And there's just some like wonderful character moments where Jesse is off screen for a little bit and you're talking to Biggs and Wedge and Cloud obviously doesn't really have any emotional attachment to Midgar or much of anything to be really. He's like, I'm, I'm in it for the money. Uh, and they're kind of trying to t- tell him like, this is why we're fighting. This is, this is what is motivating us. And then he has these like really small character moments that I just think are really kind of important and neat. And it's, it just feels so appropriate. But then there are also some moments where I just feel like there's areas of what they've added that just don't land quite as strongly. Um, and that's also in Chapter 4. I, I, maybe I won't go into much detail until a later cast, but they introduce basically a new soldier enemy named Roche. He's in the trailers and the marketing, and I just don't care for him at all. I think he's like a black hole of charisma, and he brings down any scene he's in. Um, they also introduce a bunch of, a bunch of uh, like story elements that I don't feel like pay off in this game. So it's really hard to judge them. And again, I'll leave a lot of the details for that in a, in a later cast, but it, it introduces these new ideas where right now it feels like bloat or padding, but I don't want to like judge them too harshly just yet. Cause like, what if they follow this up in a later, in a later entry, but it just kind of leaves you in a weird spot where you're like, you reach the credits and you're like, why in the world was that introduced? Do they have a plan for it? Or are they on their seat of their pants and they're just kind of like giving them Ah, uh, we can build on that if we want to later. And then the last game, the last part of the game that is an addition is the the idea of like these side quests, these optional kind of, to be honest, a little bit banal tasks that you can undertake if you want just to get. More They're items pretty in. crap so far. Yeah, like I didn't judge them too harshly in my review. I think I worded it like. They don't detract strongly from the experience, but they don't really elevate it in any way. I think one of the main weaknesses of them is that they could have been used to really give the cast more time to interact. Like, for instance, in Chapter 3 early on, 
you have like a, a half dozen tasks that you can do with Tifa in the party. And you just go around the Sector 7 slums basically doing these really menial things. Even at the best, they're, they're not good. Uh, and I felt like, okay, I could excuse this if it really gives Cloud and Tifa time to interact, to talk, to talk about what you know what is the livelihood of these people but it just doesn't it doesn't really go far enough there instead you just kind of like please do this for me okay i will do this for you thank you for doing this for me here's an item and that's like as far as it goes i'm just like Ugh. like they could have done so much better uh it doesn't really elevate the game it doesn't it does give you the opportunity to like okay here's the first time you can play with tifa you know here's some combat encounters that allow you to learn how to use her so they kind of have this like utility where you're like okay giving me these quests at this point of the game allow me to learn how she plays and how to how to handle the the how how cloud plays how tifa plays and how one's more focused on damage and one's more focused on building the stagger meter but also capable of damage things like that but it just in terms of like moving of making like a a narrative connection or, or really moving the plot it just it doesn't feel like it's as good as it could be i'll leave it i'll put it like that i've mostly been avoiding them so far because i know they're, they're just going to slow down my enjoyment of the game. I, I don't... Similar to, similar to you, I'm not going to take it... If, if I were to review it, I wouldn't say, this This makes me enjoy the game a lot less, but I wouldn't. I, I probably wouldn't say anything good about it. It's just They're just there yeah, if you yeah, want more yeah, content. Yeah, yeah, to me, the, 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 the new added story elements to the game that don't gel with me, I would probably be more harsh on than side quests that are optional in the first place sort of thing. Um... I do want to also say that Wall Market is amazing, and I do love that they could make like a footnote character Johnny. Johnny is in the original game, but he's just like he's almost like a cameo in game where you see him in the slums. You know he has a uh, you know he's kind of like a troublemaker, things like that. You see him later in Wall Market at, of course, where he's gonna be. He's gonna be like at the Honeybee Inn uh, because that's that's where that's where he would hang out. If it's the the thread the the bear the bear you know the thin character that he has. That's where he would be. But then this game kind of like he he's played for laughs, but he's also like really endearing, I thought. Like there's there's this part in Wall Market where you're trying to like get this shop owner out of a funk and he's like, Hey old dude, blah blah blah. And he's just like he's got he's voiced by Yuri Lowenthal and I just think it's just a perfect casting for him. And the fact that Final Fantasy Seven remake could make me feel like affectionate for Johnny of all characters is just I don't know, is a testament to what you can do with just like little nuggets of items that were barely thing footnotes in the original game. And they're like, we're going to expand on this. And then Wall Market also adds new characters in uh, Madame M and Andrea at the, at the Honeybee Inn and things like that. And I think they're all implemented really well. They don't like usurp the scene or upend the story or really, they don't, they don't really like hog the spotlight. They just, they feel natural and good, good inclusions. And I think they play off the party and the story well. I just wish I could say that more for things outside of Wall Market, like the Soldier Roche and like some stuff that's later in the game. A lot of that just falls a lot more flat to me. And that, that was kind of when I when I finished the game, I was just like there was there were some sections like that where I just felt like I didn't like how that was how that was executed. But we'll save the, the, the deeper details for later. When we do eventually do that, uh, a bigger focus on the story elements, I'll, I'll probably go into how much I like it there, but for now I'm I'm have, gonna say that Cloud is. Have you gotten is... to Wall Market? No, I, I think I'm literally about to. Oh. 
Well, how do so we I'm, like? I'm intrigued call, yeah. to find out who Johnny is. I don't want. I don't want to color. I don't want to color your expectations, but Walmart is probably my favorite part of the game, and it's probably the part of the that, game that's that I like the cross most anxious bit, about. It? Yeah, like people are like, "Oh no, how how are they going to make this part seem well realized yeah. in a in a game in 2020?" I think people had some really like hesitation there, and they just knocked it out of the park. It's 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 a treat. I look I look forward to hearing your thoughts about it next week. I've I've been wanting to experience that like since I heard about it because I I was one of those people that was like there's no way they'd remove that because even I'd heard about it before the remake was announced like the whole cloud cross dressing and the humor of the honeybee in and then when they actually showed it off in one of the trailers I was like okay this is just gonna be hilarious so you will hear me talk about it next time we well next week hopefully and next week or the week after we'll see we'll we'll see how, how like. If Adam takes a while to get to it, I'll just see. We'll play by ear. All right. I, maybe, I don't know. Is there any other, like, I think I've talked about the story of Final Fantasy. I've talked about the combat. Is there anything else, like, any topics about it in your experience so far that you want to bring up? Uh, I would, I, I, I'm not far enough to go into anything more than yeah. that at the moment, I think. So as soon as, soon as I am and as soon as, it's it's been a little bit of time i think i'll be able to do what we did with kingdom hearts remind where we sit down and get really emotional about it i i'm very much looking forward to that yeah so yeah my my one sentence summary is basically it feels amazing to play at its best it's like this super meticulous reimagining of something and and it hasn't done anything to like ruin what it's recreating it just feels so lovingly made it does just have some small sections where I just don't gel with it completely, but you know that's just a personal take. So you might play it and not have those at all, but it's we'll we'll talk about it in detail more, I'm sure. All right, is there? A, you also have listed here that you've still been playing Doom and Animal Crossing. I don't know if there's anything more you want to say on that that we haven't talked about uh, recently. If you've like finished and had like actually, yeah, I would. Like um, oh, okay, go ahead. I figured because we'd, we'd, we'd focus a bit more on Final Fantasy, I wouldn't mention them, but I have finally put more time into Doom Eternal as well. Uh, and that's fantastic. That is, if it wasn't for Final Fantasy, that's probably my game of the year at the moment. Which I, I know is a stupid thing to say in April, but c- considering the circumstances, the, the biggest games that have released have, are kind of now out. Um, yeah, everything else, like in And Animal Crossing, I'm, I'm loving just as much as I was before. Uh, I've slowed down a little bit on playing it because I, I think you reach a certain point where the whole excitement of it being out and like, oh, I want to time travel, I want to do this, do that. I don't want to do that anymore. I just kind of want to take it like half an hour day by day to kind of get the real experience. So I, I do well, play that like by when design, I can. isn't it? Oh yeah, for most people, but obviously we, we all know from the last time I was on the podcast, I, I was a dirty time traveler for a little bit. Yeah. So I'm trying to rectify that. Just do it purely now, um, which means I'm not. There's I haven't done much else besides like little daily things. But well, there was well, a fishing I saw, tournament I some, today. Yeah, I saw some people talking about fishing tournament. I saw some people trying to gather like recipes for like, like Japanese cherry blossom like themed equipment and furniture. Oh yeah, yeah. And like, like I think that's actually really cool. Like, you know, some people like wince at games as a service or whatever. But I th- or festivals or, or uh, timed events. But I just think because Animal Crossing is already so intimately woven with the real-time clock and calendar that it's just the perfect fit for that sort of game. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. I think it's it's so exciting to think how the, it's still going to keep 
its momentum for the, the coming months. Like, I don't think it's going to slow down. Like, because everyone hates this this bunny this bunny day thing. Imagine when there's a, a festival or event on that people actually want to do. Like, the Animal Crossing community is already so amazing. And then, say in summer when something really cool happens, that's going to just be a joy to be around. And I think that's what keeps me playing, knowing exactly. that everyone else. It's actually funny. I haven't. I kind of stopped playing Animal Crossing for a bit because I really, really didn't like how the um, Bunny Day event was messing around with the spawns for stuff like fossils and fish and whatnot. Like, I wanted to do the Cherry Blossom event, but then there was also the issue where if you shook a tree, like a Cherry Blossom tree, there would be a chance for it to be an egg instead of what you actually wanted for the um, DIY recipes. Mm. So, I. I don't know if like how widespread it is, but I've definitely noticed a few people, not just me, that like kind of been turned off from the game just because it's like, oh, that's well, really that's not what hear. I wanted. That is very widespread. I think that is it hasn't turned me off like forever. I, I know as soon as this is, the event's over, I'll probably play it a bit more, but it, it, it's it's a shame that they've started off with that event. Because I remember uh, when it was the first day of the event, I put on the RPG site staff chat. I was like, oh my god, why is everyone complaining about Bunny Day? This is so cool. I love all this like stuff. And then the next day, I was like, yeah, I'm kind of done with Bunny Day. I- I'd like to be able to fish now. Uh, it's it's a little bit uh, hyperbolic, but I saw people like, Bunny Day is ruining the economy or something like that. I'm just like, <laughs> yeah, no, it really, it must... really does. It's awful. It must have, so it sounds like they really kind of missed that. I, t- I just talked about how like promising or how much potential there was for them to implement these real world like timed events, and apparently they stumbled out of the gate. I think it's like, just this the one. first big one because the fishing well, maybe they'll, they'll, um, they'll take. I was gonna say they'll take the feedback and hopefully they'll, they'll they'll polish it down. They'll know exactly like how they need to scale the percentages, the drops, how hard they go at it. So it's kind of like the. They'll take the feedback yeah. and hopefully improve from here. It can't get worse, maybe. They've already I haven't played it, it so I don't so. know how bad it was. Oh, they did. But not it didn't really do much because it's it's still about damage has been done. Uh and last of all, Doom Eternal, which I'm gonna keep very short and sweet because I don't really think Doom Eternal's the sort of game I wanna rant about. I don't really wanna be like, right, so here's the, the lore of the Doom Slayer. Uh this is the story, I love it. Doom Eternal is fantastic, great fun, better than the 2016 one in nearly every way except for the tone, and I would massively recommend it to anyone. And that's yeah, Doom Eternal. I still want to play it. So good. Yeah. All right. Thanks, James, for kicking off a big talk with about Final Fantasy and a few other games. And Ooh, we do wait, plan on what? going... Oh, sorry, I no. meant George, not James. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "What?" <laughs> I, I just I just talked about getting your last names right, and now I got your first name wrong. <laughs> oh, jeez! All right, thank you, George, for kicking off the talk with Final Fantasy. You're welcome. And we will talk. We will talk about it more. It's just we already had to be so careful, and I think we did trip over that line already like a few times. Uh, I, I envision having a podcast where we can just say everything's on the table, so we don't have to like frame our discussion in, in awkward ways. But that'll be in the future. So, yeah. James, not George, what have you been looking at the last week? The same exact games I played last time around. So, um, still been playing. 
uh, Xenoblade Chronicles X and uh, Final Fantasy XIV. Though uh, with Final Fantasy XIV, I actually made it to Heaven's Word, so finally I made it past the bad part. <laughs> Remind me, the part that leads up to Heaven's Word is the part they're planning and shortening, right? Yeah, I'm not sure if they're also Word. planning. Um, it's the plan leading. It's the part leading up to Heaven's Word that they're planning on shortening. So um, you played I the think... original OG, yeah, and the... yeah. So basically, for Realm Reborn, there's like over a hundred quests for the main game, and a bit of its filler, more than a bit of its filler. And then after you finish the main game storyline, then there's several patches worth of content leading up to Heaven's Word. And if you actually look up the uh, quests for uh, post Realm Reborn, there's a ton of quests. Like, I think it's exactly 100, whereas if you look at the number of quests post Heaven's Word, it's only like 40-something, maybe a little bit more. So it's like, a significant amount of content that you just need to grind through. And I'd say the first half of the um, quests are kind of bad. And then it finally starts getting good, like in the middle of 2.3. And then it actually ties pretty, pretty well into the beginning of Heaven's Word, which is in really nice. Um, enjoyed it. Didn't play as much FF14 this week as I kind of, well no I did play a bunch but I didn't play so much of the story this week because I've been helping some friends like grind up characters like doing like a, a bunch of duties and whatnot um I did start Heaven's Word um see uh, the story seems to be ramping up right now haven't done a dungeon or a trial yet but it's kind of interesting how they've cha they changed the uh I won't say level design, I'll say field design in Heaven's Word versus the base game areas because they're way more open and like you can tell they were designed with the flight in mind, but it's weird because you can't actually fly in your mounts until you basically fully finish or almost fully finish each of those areas because the way it works is you need to attune yourself to ether currents on each of the maps. And there's a bunch of them that you need to actually explore the maps to find. And then there's also some that you won't, you won't unlock until you finish some MSQs or main scenario quests. So you On paper, that sounds the, really neat. Yeah, so you gain the ability to fly basically when you're done, which is, on one hand, it's like, well, that's kind of disappointing because there's like not that much reason to fly like once you're already done. But on the other hand, it's like, well, that's a cool little uh, gift for finishing finishing things up because you can actually explore some areas that maybe you wouldn't have had direct access to before and all that sort of stuff. So I haven't played Final Fantasy XIV, but I'm like wondering if they implemented like a new map and allowed you to fly right away, if that would almost like trivialize the experience by a lot yeah. by grounding you. Is that basically what they're doing? They're like saying you can't fly until you do this yeah yeah and it's actually kind of ironic because it seemed it ties really well into the other game i've been playing this week which is xenoblade where like one of the big selling points for xenoblade cross um was that you had the scales and that you could explore and fight in them but let me tell you i'm 
over I'm over 30 hours into the game and I don't have my skill yet. And I know that even once you get the skill, you can't fly that skill until like even later on. So it's kind of a similar yes. situation because I've explored like a significant portion of Primordia, significant portion of Noctilum. Oblivia I have I've explored about half of it. Um going to try and explore a bit more of that soon, but um yeah, it's kind of a similar situation. You don't really get access to the uh, scales and Xenoblade until you've pretty much already explored a significant portion of the areas without them. And then there's just like certain sections that are kind of locked off that you can't really access until you get a scale. And then furthermore, there's some areas where you need to be able to fly a scale to explore. So it's um pretty interesting in that sense. Uh I've been enjoying both of them. Like uh, I enjoyed them last week. Enjoying them this week. Uh, Xenoblade uh, finished chapter five. Uh, saw I met the Manon, which are interesting creatures. It's kind of they're kind of like almost mascotty in the sense that they fulfill a similar niche that the Nopon do for having like a tiny race of like people that just incorporate themselves in the story and whatnot but it's also like well did they need that because they already have no pawns in the cross but um remind me is chapter five where you learn the first big uh yes plot yes. twist yes yeah i don't i think that twist is a little bit awkward but i don't like, think so how did this I not don't... come up before but it's uh, it's actually it is because if you're doing yeah. all of these side activities, you get little bits and pieces, like little bits and pieces of dialogue that seem weird when you first see them. But then once the twist actually happens, some of that dialogue makes a lot more sense in context. Yeah, so that's, like, that's, always, that's always the line you have to toe with a twist. Like you kind of want to... You don't want the twist to come out of absolutely nowhere. And you want to have like some places where like those little hints and dialogue like you mentioned where they fit with the twist, but you don't want it to be so blatantly telegraphed that it's like I saw yeah. it come from a mile away. So that's a fine line to balance in terms of teasing it but not giving it away. It's definitely one of those things, and this is something that can be said of Xenoblade um cross in general, but you definitely get more out of the experience the more that you do these side activities and explore. And like the story, it definitely feels like is a similar deal. Um, yeah, it's kind of surprising just how much of like the the characterization for both like well, not even just characterization, but New LA is actually a really sort of almost like an evolution of the Colony 6 thing, um, restoration from Xenoblade 1, whereas that you're trying to, like, kind of build it up from the ground up. And you don't really see, like, specifically that in New LA, but some of the, like, side quests, like, tones are similar in the sense that you're talking with all these people in New LA, you're, you're helping them. And it's really interesting how there's specific quests where... It doesn't tell you, but depending on how you uh, deal with them, some characters can live or die. And it's really neat how the game doesn't shy away from doing that, like, relatively, con well, I, not necessarily constantly, but 
relatively consistently. And I guess it kind of ties into the difference in tone between the original Xenoblade and Cross. It's just... I, I know when this game first came out, there was, and I mentioned this when I was playing it not that long ago, but like if you're the type of person who likes to like streamline or critical path the main story, and if you do that in, in Cross... You're not going to get nearly as much out of it, and I know some people just didn't care for it. It is, and like I mentioned, it is the type of game where it it kind of wants you to explore and talk to people and do these side quests, and because that's where a lot of like the world building and uh, like just kind of even just even some of the game's themes come out more in those moments rather than just the, the storyline cutscenes, and that's pretty different from from like Xenoblade One and Two, where are more are much more story heavy cutscene heavy games so I, I know i can i definitely can see where that criticism came from and it's it's one of those things i think going into it now when i went into it and now when you're going into it you just maybe not doesn't catch you as off guard you kind of hear about the type of structure it has it is pretty different yeah like if anyone is going to be playing Xenoblade Cross, like in this day and age, the number one piece of advice I would give them is do as many of the affinity missions as you can, because if you really want story from the game, and if you really want to learn more about the characters, those affinity missions, even more so than the actual story missions, I'd say, are your bread and butter if you want to get to know more about the world and the characters. But yeah, um, I unlocked Overdrive, which is an interesting uh, sort of gameplay feature that I actually don't fully understand. I'm going to have to read up about that a bit. But but um, as far as I can tell, like the, you combo specific arts together, which increases this number, which increases the speed on which your secondary and tertiary uh, effects for your attacks rise and then there's should be a certain way to keep the uh, overdrive going longer because i like looking around i hear hear about people talking about like infinite overdrive builds or something like that so there is a way to extend it but i don't yeah, know how yet you, you need so much tp to like go into overdrive which doesn't last you there's ways to increase how long it lasts but i think it's let's just say 10 seconds and an infinite overdrive build is basically if you can during your overdrive mode, if you can get if you can build up enough TP, like I think it's three thousand, to activate it again, you can kind of keep it up perpetually. And apparently, there's a few different builds to do that. I actually found a longsword build to do that with. Um, I mean, obviously now the game's been out several years, you can find these online, but you're probably too early in the game to have all the different components you need to do it. But yeah, it's definitely one of those components in the game where, especially for some of the late game enemies, if you can pull it off, it helps out a ton. Yeah, like it's definitely pretty interesting. And um, yeah, uh, one thing I did find pretty recently is um, in Oblivia. So my characters are like around level 26, level 27 right now. And I found this group of uh, um, Grexes are like level 35 that I can actually take down pretty easily, but they're like blue strength enemies, which means that the amount of XP that I get 
not only is the base XP higher because their level's higher, but because the level disparity is so high, I can actually, for all of my party members I've been kind of not using, I can bring them into the party momentarily, fight just a few of those Grexes and get them like five levels higher in just like a matter of like a few minutes, which is pretty nice. Because um, that's one, that's actually one complaint I have about Xenoblade Like, I know why some RPGs do it, that party members you don't use, you need to grind up. But honestly, when you have a game like Cross, where there's so many, like, party members that you can potentially have, I feel like party members that you don't have with you should be getting some XP. Maybe not all the XP that you're getting from doing, like, stuff like quests and fighting uh, indigenous life and whatnot. But honestly, I feel like at least some of the XP should be going towards people that you've benched because it seems to be at least a little bit annoying that they are that they can fall so far behind so quickly. Yeah, it is. I mean, just a simple numbers game, really. There's 18 party members, and you can only have three of them with you at any one time. So that's a lot of people on the bench. Uh, I totally understand. Not and to mention, I found myself kind of shuffling through them all the time. Not to mention that for the majority of the time, you're both um, Lynn and Elma locked in your party for story purposes. And like the majority of the affinity missions deal with them anyways. So really, although you can swap them out for the majority of the time, you're just going to have your uh, main character, Lynn, Elma, and then one other person in your party. It's just... I think in general, also, another criticism of the game, because there's so many secondary party members, Lynn and Elma being kind of the main ones, that I found what I did, and especially later in the game, there's less party coordination in general, where, like in the other Xenoblade games, you have to be obviously much smaller parties, and you have to be a little bit more cognizant of like how your characters are built either with their cores or gems or whichever whichever Xenoblade game you're talking about. But in this game, it feels like you have to focus more primarily on your main character and your side characters that are with you. You have to you can't ignore them completely, but since there's just so many of them and you don't want to micromanage 18 other characters, you're maybe just a little bit yeah. lax on, on how they're built. And it's more so like, can you hold your, your own? And they're just there, honestly... Especially for some of those late game tyrants, they're just like, just be a distraction. You know, you're not going to do nearly as much damage as I'm going to do. So just whatever. <laughs> um, about the micromanaging aspect of it, I definitely agree on that. Um, that point. But one thing that stood out to me, and maybe I'm just dumb and I couldn't find the option in the menus, but is there no way to auto like unequip augments from every un like every non-equipped like armor or weapon? I don't think so, and because there's so many different, so much equipment in the game, you can hold like a thousand pieces. If you if you stick an augment on an armor and then you unequip it, it might take a while to find out where that armor is. And where yeah, the that was is. one thing that immediately annoyed me because it's like, I feel like it's really fun it, toying around with augments, and like even early on, what you can do with augments, they really improve your capabilities, like really early on it just they can be a nine day difference and that's what's so annoying about the fact that dealing with like slotting and unslotting augments is clunky like if they port this game to switch 
one thing they absolutely need to do is have the ability to unequip all augments just flat out i'm trying to remember if the original xenoblade had i think the original xenoblade when you put gems in a in an armor it would like you could easy you could more easily if i'm I, it's been a while but you could more easily see which armors had gems slotted in them i think but that menu yeah. was a little bit more grid-based and not just a list, so maybe it was just a little bit more visually nice to sift through. Um, yeah, I mean, you can yeah. still tell if, a, if something in your inventory has an augment. The problem is, is you have to mouse over it first, then you can see if it has a, if it has something slotted. So it's like, there's definitely a few little things in, in Cross that could use some tweaking if they ever bring it forward to a modern-day console. But I'm not sure how much I talked about this last week, but I... I'm not sure how well the game would stack up when ported to the Switch because a lot of the game's pacing and a lot of, a lot of the ways that the gamepad is specifically used in that game for like mapping out the world and whatnot. I'm not I, while you could definitely make it work on the Switch. I'm not sure how well the pacing would survive in the transition because stuff like uh, setting data probes and like figuring out, okay, so this area above me has that I should not even mess with because it's like a green difficulty or whatnot. It's just, it's odd because, and the, like, even like the fast travel is based all on the gamepad. So it's like, yeah, you could pause and then like maybe like do fast travel from there. But it's like so much of the UI and the, the, um, the HUD are just entirely based around the idea of having an having a separate screen that you can just allocate all that to. Yeah, because if if it was all on one switch screen, you'd be toggling back and forth all the time, and it'd be honestly really tedious if it was set up the way it is now. And like you said, it's not immediately obvious how you adjust for that. <laughs> so, like something as simple as the. Uh, like, I actually really like how the game tells you where, how each segment of the map, like, tells you what the average, like, difficulty level for um, the enemies in that area is. Because it gives you, like, it's interesting, because when you look at um, Frontier Nav, you can actually see how each of the areas is designed with a sort of critical path in mind. Like, even just, like, looking at Silvalum now, I can see that there's, like, a line of purple difficulty basically running diagonally through it up to um what's the name of the last area the uh lava one Caldoros. Caldoros. yeah so it's like the game's definitely designed with that sort of critical path through these areas in mind but it's actually pretty interesting how you can still see like the pockets of areas you could like explore if you're willing to kind of wade through these enemies that could kill you just if they decide to look at you funny yeah, but, um, Caldros is really interesting, and it, that sort of that sort of nonlinear difficulty I actually really like in in Xenoblade games. In that, like some of the higher areas of Silvalum and kind of that path in between, or oh, what is it, Primordia and Silvalum? There's a lot of like really tough enemies. You have to either you have to at that point you have to pretty much avoid, or else you're going to get squished. Yeah. But uh, there's actually like the, the center area of Caldros. I think most of the enemies there. Like just if you stick into like the center regions of it, are around level thirty, so not super duper high. 
Uh, so if you can get there relatively early, like 25 hours in the game or roughly, uh, that's about as far as you're in now, right? Just you can you can manage. It just you you have to just get around some tougher areas first. And I actually really appreciate that. It feels more a little bit more realistic rather than like every enemy you fight in the first area is level five and every enemy you fight in the second area is level 15 or whatever. So it's yeah, it's kind of neat neat how like a bunch of the coastal areas and like all of the different regions have these really, really wimpy crabs, but it's like, it make it, it's kind of like, even though you have these different regions on the world, it makes it feel more cohesive because it's like, okay, so these types of crab enemies spawn on the coasts and they're all kind of wimps, but, and there's like, no real reason for you to fight them but it's it, it feels right that they're there because it's like well yeah they're they're a coastal um life form that that's where would, they would show up it, yeah to jump in and be kind of silly like i always thought those those jokes about like older classic jrpgs where it's like well the citizens of the town that's 20 hours in the game must be 50 levels higher than the citizens of the starting town because they just exist amongst these uh creatures that are designed to be late game creatures it's obviously just meant to be like not a story thing not diegetic but the fact that xenoblade first of all i also want to say that this game sounds like a game i would absolutely adore if i just had the means to play it um hint, hint. but uh the fact that they're just like yeah there would be just weak crabs around here even late in the game just it just seems like yeah it doesn't it doesn't serve any other purpose other than a little nice you know almost world building in a way where it's like of course they would be here why wouldn't they be just just because you encounter this place later in the game that's arbitrary yeah i um i think i said it last week but especially now i'm really starting to feel it um yeah i think this um xenoblade has the potential to be maybe my personal favorite just because i've always been a big like fan of world building and whatnot and honestly i think of the Xenoblades I've played, which is I, technically all of them besides Torna, uh, I think the world and level design in Cross is by far the best. Like, it expands upon the sort of um, level design that the first game had that I felt like to kind of step back from. Like, the way that sprawls open and how there's, like, several different paths sometimes, like, overweaving on top of each other. Like, honestly, Noctilum especially is one of my favorite areas in any game just because of the level design. And, like, when I found, when I first saw, like, this Nopon Bridge up, like, above the, tr- like, up, up above this plane, I was like, how the hell do I get there? And then I find it and it's like, wow, that's really cool. And then it's like, holy crap, there's even more I can explore up here. It's just... It man. is really cool. Like uh, like when you first enter Oblivia, or even I think you can maybe even see them in uh, in parts of Primordia. You, you see those giant rings in the background and they yeah. look like they're just, you know, they're just background art. And it, to be cliche, it's like, hey, eventually you can climb those. Uh, and just cool things like oh, that. Howard, is that you? Yes. <laughs> but I do think Xenoblade X or Cross does do a pretty good job in terms of it is a big open world game, but and there's a lot of things to like collect and things like that too. So if you just hate absolutely hate open worlds, this game's not really for you. But I think it does a pretty good job at not having like like the Assassin's Creed problem where there's collectibles 
all over the place. Like this density of like shit to do absolutely like just filling the screen with the menial stuff. I feel like it does a pretty good balance of loot to get enemies to find quests and regions to explore and things like that. I'll definitely say though, I'm glad that there's a, because there's been a few side quests where ask me to find certain things and it's like, okay, where do I find this? And it's just like, well, I got one of these somewhere, but it doesn't actually say which region of the map I picked it up, which is kind of annoying. I'll just have to look it up. <laughs> which is, uh, yeah. But yeah. yeah. It, never it never feels good to have to pull up a wiki with something that, like, not the game shouldn't just, like, hand it to you, but it would have been nice for them to say, you know, they're here here's what you should do if you want to complete this it's somewhere in this region or from this enemy type or whatever it's funny though because the game does do that well in some cases like i posted a tweet a few days ago about how so when you're walking around new la there will be people talking and there's like these yellow bubbles that if you walk by you'll hear some information about oh hey here's what you need to do to clear the um the research for one of the nodes on the map or, hey, here's some information about this mission. If you go here, this person might have a mission for you. Or in my case, one of the things that you can, um, one of the side missions you have is that there's a group, there's two people that were bickering that get into a helicopter crash in Noctilum. And when you get there and once you clear out the enemies to help them uh, leave, they need you to repair the helicopter. And the person you talk to is like, eh, I don't think it really matters to repair it. You can use the blue wire or the red wire. Well, if one of the text bubbles that you can actually pick up in New LA is somebody in the background just saying, hey, if your helicopter ever has any issues with the rotor, make sure you repair it this way. So if you remember that and actually go into your info tab in the menu, read that and... Uh, make sure that you repair it in such a way that you don't cause someone to die. <laughs> so stuff like that is actually really nice, which makes it all the more baffling when there's situations where, okay, so you give me all I need to know about them to, to deal with the side quest, but when you're asking me to find certain things, like even if I've already found that item before, you don't really give any hint, which is weird. Yeah, maybe I'm trying to poetically tie this together in a way that doesn't quite work. But I think it's interesting to hear that the two main games we've talked about this last hour and a half, Final Fantasy VII Remake and Xenoblade Chronicles Cross, are like absolute opposite in terms of paradigm and like how they're designed. Like one of them, Final Fantasy, is incredibly linear, and I'm not I'm not saying that with any judgment of whether that's good or bad, but it's straightforward. It's at its best when it's recreating like story scenes and moving you from plot beat to plot beat. And then there's Xenoblade Chronicles Cross where it's just like, here's the playground, go anywhere or nearly so, you know, you, you're, you are yeah. up to your own ambitions in terms of what you want to do and how you want to do it. And one game isn't necessarily better or worse than the other based on that decision alone. It's all, it's all dependent on the implementation. So two very opposite games that we somehow just tie into the same genre and say, that's how it works. Just interesting to think about, I think. Well, you know, that actually brings me up to like your review. And this is one thing I do like about reading 
reviews about games like Final Fantasy VII Remake is that RPGs especially, and this is one reason why we write about them, are just so varied with so many components to them. And inevitably, some people are going to be drawn to certain aspects over others. And your review, you spent 80% of it talking about, I really attach to these systems and this design and this uh, combat and strategy and uh, building your characters and things like that, where other reviews might go directly into like, I love the recreation of the characters in the world. And uh, and obviously everyone's going to touch on everything, but just where people put their focus in an RPG in terms of like the things they attach to and the things that they really value, it, it varies quite wildly from person to person. And in fact, there are some people out there, like we gave Saga Scarlet Grace our Game of the Year award last year, which that that type of RPG strongly appeals to some people, but might strongly repel others. And it's just kind of, that's just how this genre is. I actually wanted to bring up Saga earlier, but I did a, but I did a like, lot of like, but since you've broken the door open, now I'm allowed <laughs> to talk about it. Um, uh, I just wanted to say something along the lines of, I don't think that it's a mistake that Final Fantasy moved away from turn-based or any modern game moves away from turn-based. There's some people who seem to think that turn-based has no place anywhere anymore. It's an abstract old idea that was only ever created due to limitations at the time. And I just really don't feel that because I feel like in every case, you're going to have to abstract combat in some way. Like even in Final Fantasy VII Remake, you're selecting ability commands from a menu. It's not like you. It's not like in a real combat situation assuming that this like that you would say i have a move and i call it braver and it means it's a forward flip with my sword you know at some point you have to abstract it to some degree and turn-based systems are just more so than real-time systems and i was actually going to use like saga scarlet grace as an example of a turn-based system still being equally as engaging as action i don't think that everything needs to be funneled to something that resembles action i just absolutely don't but at the same time, Final Fantasy implemented its action-ish system so well that I absolutely have no complaints. So that's I, that's, I wanted to bring up Saga, but I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to bring up Saga. But since you did, uh, I wanted just to chime that on, I guess. Sorry, did I just kill the room? I didn't mean to. Well, I think... <laughs> We've so we've we've I think we've exhausted the discussion we wanted to have on Final Fantasy VII Remake for now, and then Xenoblade Chronicles Cross. It's kind of weird we've talked about it so many weeks in a row now, but I, yeah. I ended up playing it, and then James ended up playing it. But it's I think it's a really cool game. Yeah, I promise if I end up playing it, I won't talk about it. No, please do, please do. It's gonna be a slow couple of weeks. No, a couple of months. <laughs> uh. Yeah, but yeah. Does anyone else any have luck? any other games they've played in the last week that they want to talk about? I, I'm just trying to open the floor up. Like, was there any, like, to cap yeah. off this section? I think it's been kind of cool how we've both, like, the two games we've talked about have been able to be split off into twos as well. So, like, we had Brian and I talking about Final Fantasy and then Adam and James about Xenoblade. Like, it was just nice to hear the level of passion for Xenoblade X, like, even though I haven't played it, it's, it's always fun to hear when someone cares that much about something. Yeah, it's kind of like the old guard versus the new in terms of like the <laughs> RPG series. Now, obviously, you know, if you draw its you know lineage back, you can go back nearly as far. But it's just it's just kind of like two different styles of games. Just, but we both we'll just we'll lump them together and call them RPGs because we're allowed to do that, and no one's going to stop us. 
All right, so as for like other topics this week, there honestly really hasn't been a whole lot because it's all just been uh, pushed back or delayed or just the stuff that we already knew was coming has come, such, such as like Resident Evil last week and Final Fantasy this week. Um, one of the biggest announcements of this week isn't RPG specific, but it's got a lot of strong ties to RPGs, is the reveal of the DualSense, not the DualShock, the DualSense controller for the PlayStation 5. Uh, George, how do we feel about this thing? I'll just leave it there. Complicated, but overall optimistic. I think the thing that's really throwing people off at the moment is the color. So when I first saw it, it was I was just waking up actually, and I was like, "That doesn't, that can't be real. White and black, that's weird." But then the more I looked at it, the more I was like, "Actually, that kind of looks like quite cool, it's futuristic." Uh, the things they've described in as functions of the controller are all really promising as well uh I, I think sony's problem at the moment is that they're they're going about it kind of weird with all the like minimal reveals so like for instance they mentioned with the with the dual sense um stuff like the haptic triggers which is really cool on paper but we haven't seen anything about how that will actually be a function during games um and i think one of the one of the issues that came up with me is in the PlayStation blog. They're like, "Oh, we've we've replaced the create button. Oh, we've replaced the share button and turned it into the create button." And then they're like, "Oh, but we'll tell you more about that down the line." It's like, how can you expect people to get excited with like vague messaging? To me, that just seems like arbitrary. Like if it's if the create button still just allows you to snap screenshots, take video, and do some very light editing, like trimming, like. I still call them start and select. It doesn't really matter what you call them. Like, the, name, <laughs> yeah, true. the name itself isn't important. Like, like I'll press the start button. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. It's the options button on the PS4 control. Like, like okay, that, it's still going in the same place where I wanted it to go. It's, But I guess Sony realizes the what the... they have in terms of momentum, that they can put this like on Instagram and get 3 million likes or whatever yeah. it was. Same with but... the um, just the logo reveal. The problem is, is that changing it would imply that there's much more to it uh I, I can't really think of what it could be and that's that's awesome I, i'd love more functionality because I'm, I'm the sort of person who snaps screenshots every time something looks cool but to tease it and not say it is kind of annoying when sony have been doing that for quite a while obviously it won't matter in the end because they'll they'll reveal the ps5 i'll pre-order it instantly even though i'll have no money and that, that that's just how it's gonna go but it's a bit of a confusing thing. Overall, though, I really like the dual sense. I, I won't know until it's in yeah. my hands, but it looks cool. Yeah, the color at first looks really off. It's one of those things, yeah, because like everyone I've talked with, you either love it instantly, or you didn't feel um, feel super hot about it at first. And I was kind of there, but like the more I look at it, the more I'm like, you know, I'm fine with it. I'm fine with it. I, I yeah, I've seen like. I don't think I've ever like self-reflected and seen in a way where I see these people like doing mock-ups of like what would a limited edition controller look like or a controller with this color scheme, and they all actually look like really neat. Some really talented people are being like, "What if the what if yeah. the grips are, are are dark blue and the center is black or, or stuff like that?" 
and it's like wow that actually looks really awesome like the, the the plain white and black i don't know if i'm still on board with but some yeah, of that stuff, yeah stuff that people have come on with like normally i look up mock-ups like remember like the original switch mock-ups and they're just like Shit. awful little yeah. things that i'm just like jesus what in the world but then i look at these little maybe it's just because mostly they're just like color tweaks and i look at that and i'm like you know what this seems really neat but at the same time like i'm not really like a controller purist like i don't really have a super strong preference between xbox xbox elite like i still use my 360 controller sometimes uh obviously i use a ps4 controller to play final fantasy like i just i don't feel that strongly about any individual one with the exception of the fact that the switch pro controller i don't know how anyone plays on that thing it's just way too light and oh, the d-pad has, been... has never served me right I've been playing Xenoblade using my Switch Pro controller hooked up to my PC. <laughs> it's okay, but like the D-pad just maybe I have a lemon, but I just it just doesn't ever feel like I'm it feels super mushy and I just don't like how it has no heft to it. Yeah. So I uh, guess I, I know am, you am, I con- am I am I contradicting myself? I said like I don't really care about controllers, but except <laughs> this one which I don't like. I I'm quite I think I say this every single time, but I'm quite manipulated into hype. Uh, we all know this now. As soon as I see well, something, at like least that, you admit it. Yeah. Oh, oh completely. Like I, I'm, I'm on the hype train for literally anything that comes my way. Like even if I don't have a passing interest, it's just if I see someone there, like, oh, this is kind of, this is kind of neat. I'm like, yeah, I bet it is. Get me on this, get me on this hype train. Um. So when they posted that, I was, I've instantly been thinking about the PS5 a lot more. So I guess I'd say it's effective. Well, people are trying to like extrapolate. If the controller looks like this, then the box has to look like this. It's like, well, man, George, who George the here with George here on the Greg Miller School of Hype. <laughs> there we go. We need one. Everyone needs one of those guys. Yep. Nothing wrong with that. I, I feel like if I could make one change to the controller, um, though. Again, like I said, it is growing on me. I feel like the touchpad should also be black. It, I don't know. It just feels weird that the touchpad specifically is white. Not sure if it's just me. Yeah, I do, I, I, I do know what you mean. Yeah. Also, I'm I'm sad that the uh, face buttons don't have the classic colors. I'm sure uh, they will have I, a version I, I, that comes with the, the that comes yeah. with the colors. But... They'll have some sort of like legacy version or whatever that'll have it. And yeah. even I, who don't They'll really have, have like a colors. strong Sony, of, yeah, I don't have like a strong Sony affinity, really. But I look at that and I'm just like, oh, this looks way too like, oh, what's the word when like you you like just sterilized? Complete, yeah, the sterilized. Yeah, feels that's like, true. Uh, yeah, they took all the character out of it. We're like, it feels like they went too far and like we got to make this modernized. It's the like, clear like, buttons, minimalist. I'm just like, uh. which is which is ironic because both the PSP and the Vita didn't have the color, but I'm fine with those, so I don't. I say that as I um I have an Xbox 360 controller on my desk that has like the yellow, blue, red buttons, and then I've got the Elite controller where they're all just uh, transparent. Yeah. Yeah. So for I'm some reason, I went but... for the colored switch. So right now my desk has. A Switch control, a Switch Pro controller, my DualShock Four, and my Xbox Elite controller on it. So, you got to pick a favorite, James. Come on, you can't just you can't just have one of each. It's not allowed. I, look, I mean, I I literally brought my PS with me when, for now, so it's like probably next week I'll actually be talking about Fancy Star Online Two a bit some more. So, 
there's my excuse for having the xbox controller <laughs> so yeah we're, we're scraping the bottom of the barrel maybe for ps5 news with the uh controller but it's 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 not like i mean we'd have less to talk about if they just said here's the dualshock 5 it looks the same here you go yeah it's kind of uh, interesting also... how from the playstation 1 to the playstation 2 to the playstation 3 the controller just got really iterative like improvements and then with PS4, it's like, okay, we're going to really mess with it. And then with PS5, it's like, okay, we're going to do that again. <laughs> I think only time will tell whether it's good changes or not. I, I think what they're promising is really cool, but I'm getting a lot of that with the PS5, or as it is. Like, the audio, the SSD, it's all really, really cool sounding, but when just, they finally reveal it, that's when I'll know. I just hope that the D-pad isn't as mushy as it is current DualShock 4. And the only reason I'm saying that is because I just can't believe that they made the Vita D-pad, which is probably one of the best D-pads in the whole industry, and then they made the PS4 controller's D-pad, which isn't bad, but it's like one of the best things about the Vita's D-pad is it's like just the right amount of clicky, and then the PS4 D-pad's like has no click whatsoever. It's just mush. Between my controllers and my desk, I think the uh, I don't have a Vita on hand. Sadly, you can judge me. But uh, the uh, the Xbox One controllers, both the regular and the Elite, have the best D-pad out of the one I have. But I'm okay with it as long as it's not the Pro controller. It feels like it's funny how I'm, everyone has I'm like pre- an opinion on the D-pad, except for maybe Adam. Well, we use them enough. No, I'm pretty I'm pretty controller agnostic in that I'll pick one up and then two seconds later I forget what I'm using because I don't even think about it. But the one thing that I am not agnostic about, I still use a 360 controller for most PC games and that D-pad is worse than any of the other ones we've talked about. Jeez. You think it's you think it's worse than the uh, Switch? The 360 Switch D-pad? Oh yeah, it's like this weird oh. disc squishy mushy thing. Oh, squishy mushy. <laughs> It's actually I, funny because like, go ahead. Because both uh, Brian and I can talk about this because we both have an elite. The disc D pad that it comes with by default is actually pretty nice. I feel like it works better than you would expect, and and more specifically for when I play fighting games, I feel like the way that it's uh, oriented actually works really well for fighting games. Um, I don't know, just something I I feel. And, and really my strong. personal like use on both of my elite controllers, version one and version two, one of the first things I like swap out is that disc pad for the standard cross pad. Oh. But that also reminds me, there was a tiny bit of news. This is ab- this is absolutely a footnote, but I think there was like a patent that someone found where S- Valve and Steam like have details about a new generation of a Steam controller, and it suggests like more modularity than even that where you can like choose where on the pad the joysticks are and the pads are like whether or not you wanted to have it symmetrical or asymmetrical um i didn't read into it but uh, i just thought that was, that was just interesting where it's just like fine you can't you can't agree on whether you like the 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 offset sticks or the symmetrical sticks then you just pick so it feels kind of like funny in practice but then i wonder like if it's too modular if that's going to end up making you feel like cheap where you just, like, like, just never, the, the sticks never feel like they're in the proper position. 
um, I guess it's not even it's not even ever really been announced yet. But I, you, I just thought about how the the Elite controller gives you some very minor options in terms of the paddles and the D pad, and then this, the new Steam controller potentially might be going further in that back. direction. Sorry about Bless that. You, no problem. Bless you. We're all that's doing this my dog act. That's that's my dog actually. <laughs> Bless your dog. <laughs> um, I was gonna say actually the um. Steam controller. I'm interested to see what the next one is going to look like because I'm, I'm certain they're going to have a revision of it. Um, like since I picked one up, like when it was on fire sale, I used it quite a bit. Like when I was doing um, our uh, Dragon Quest Builders to PC review, I actually really enjoyed using it for like uh, PC games specifically. And um, if they can improve upon the concept with a new one, like more specifically. They need to improve the bumpers. I'm not sure if anyone else here has yes, used the Steam yeah. controller. You have? Oh, I thought you. I thought you meant Xbox then. I, I was just no, no, no. Steam out. controller. I haven't. Um, I was when Brian was just mentioning about Steam controller. I, I sat here like you know that might be the only controller out there that I have zero idea about. Have you... Yeah. Um, it's weird because like the Steam controller is really interesting in the sense that. It does some things really, really well, and then there's some other things that are kind of just bad. Like, the bumpers are bad. They're really, really stiff. Like, and it's funny. Like, a lot of people say that the Xbox controller's bumpers are stiff, and to a certain degree they are, but honestly, I think they're fine. But the Steam controller's bumpers are just actual garbage, which is funny because the triggers are actually really, really nice, and they're kind of like... They're kind of like the GameCube controller triggers, where it's like, once you get to a certain point, they click in, and that's a separate input. So it's like, that's nice. The, like, one actual analog stick on it is nice. The trackpads are nice. But then it's like, there's no D-pad, so if you want to do anything that has to do with uh, digital movement like that, it's a bit awkward. And then there's the face buttons that they do have are super, super tiny. They're like, smaller than like the 3ds face buttons and they're it's just not the best <laughs> so i don't know i should have got one when it went on fire not to say no i was just yeah. saying i kind of want it. i wish i picked one up that's all i was saying honestly they're really nice for um if you're like just lounging around and like browsing the web because the way that they have it set up for desktop use is really nice because you actually just swirl your thumb around on like the trackpad to like use the scroll wheel and then you can like use the uh, left and right uh, triggers to book to left click and right click it, it actually works really well and then there's also um stuff like uh i'm trying to remember what specifically but um yeah it works really well for stuff like that it's actually really really nice for like browsing the web This isn't really too related to the controller, but I do wish uh, if there's any one project of Valve that I wish they would like. I guess I wasn't really super hyped about the new <clears throat> controller or even the old one, but I was. I was, I think that the current implementation of like big picture mode, uh, I just don't like how it's how it is in its current state. But that's. I guess I'm getting on a tangent there, just talking about Steam. But you talk about controlling like the computer or your or your web browser with the controller and i was just thinking about like that putting that on like a bigger tv and then using the controller with like big picture mode yeah. but i don't like how big picture mode works it's, it's 
I think a big I have, problem. With... I have turned it on. Sorry, um, I just I had once like enabled that Steam. Uh, I, I don't remember what, exactly what the toggle is, but if you have Steam running and you and you engage a controller, I can use just my Elite controller if I wanted to to move my cursor or whatever. It just does, obviously doesn't feel good with analog sticks, so you don't really get a lot of use out of it. Yeah, I'd say the um, big picture mode is fine, but it, but now that the main client has gotten. I feel like um, big picture mode should definitely be next than getting a rework. It's been overdue. Like I think the last time they did anything, any changes to it was when they were working on Steam OS, and that was like, God, was that like six years ago? Something like that, six, seven. Yeah, it feels like a long time ago. I haven't heard. I haven't heard yeah. Steam OS mentioned in a while. Yeah, Steam as far as I know, they're still like supporting it or something like that. So it's like wild all right so to cap off the section george if you could play any game with a gimmick controller what would it be a, a gimmick controller uh, a given controller like any one controller you could play any uh, game with it. Which okay it is. um you know i really do like the dualshock i i don't think I don't think I've ever had a problem with it. Besides, no, that, that's fine. That's fair. But yeah, I'm gonna sound like a fanboy here, but because it's the system I play on most, because I, I never really got on with the Xbox controller so much. I do quite like the Switch Pro controller, um, even though it's a bit light and feels a bit cheap for how much it is. Uh, it, it's the only way I really play my Switch. Um, but yeah, I think I'll go Dual Shock. What about you? I think I like the original. Xbox Elite, not the version two. Um, the version two has like these weird oh, really? on like the on the triggers that I don't know if I like. But it would probably just be Elite version one. Adam, I don't know if you would. Adam's just gonna be like, I don't give a Adam. If you had to pick one, what would it be? This is maybe contradictory. I am totally fine with the Xbox 360 controller, with the exception of that D-pad. But luckily, most so you, games you, I play don't really use it. If you, if you, if you knew the D-pad sucks so much, but everything else is fine. Have you used the Xbox One controller? Yeah, I used Brian's Elite for a bit, but I don't think I ever really got used to it enough. I mean, yeah, yeah. And James, um, because I have so many controllers, it's it's really, really hard for me to say, like, if I had to use one controller specifically, because it's like, well, usually I just hop between controllers depending on the game and whatnot. Like, even though I mostly use, like, either my Xbox or my Steam controller on PC, very specifically because of Monster Hunter, I use my DualShock 4 just because I have so many hundreds of hours in Monster Hunter World on PS4. So the muscle memory is there. So, makes sense. Uh, um, honestly, either the PS4 or the Xbox One controller are perfectly fine. I feel like there was a big gap in how well each of them felt, like how the PS3 and the 360 controllers felt last generation, that just isn't there. Like, both the DualShock 4 and the Xbox One controller are perfectly ergonomic. Both of them have decent sticks. Both of them have triggers that aren't awful. Both of them have decent bumpers, though. So, though honestly, I feel like it's not really a 
I feel like most people can agree that the DualShock 4 probably has the better bumpers at least, but again, yeah, it's so. it, it, it's a bit of a crapshoot. Like, both of them are great. Both of them work. I went kind of for the same reason that Adam wouldn't use uh, an X Xbox 360 controller for some things. I wouldn't use the, the Switch Pro controller for anything that required heavy D-pad use just because, although, ironically enough, the Xenoblade Pro controller has a Improved D-pad for the for whatever this reason. It? Yeah, it it has a slightly improved D-pad that doesn't misfire as much. So I actually haven't That's had weird. too many issues with firing, but just the way it feels, kind of like how um, uh, Brian was talking about, the D-pad just doesn't feel super good. Just doesn't feel super good. So no so. one's going to use a Wiimote <laughs> or gamepad. God. Um, Our yeah. Well, we got we got an interesting twenty minute discussion out of the controller, but yep, the Dual Sense announced for PlayStation Five. It looks different. The mockups for it actually look really cool. It'll be interesting to see how close the um the console design matches kind of what the controller implies. Beyond that, in more specific RPG news, we only have like literally two things. Um, one of them is that uh, The Witcher Three Wild Hunt has sold an estimated 28 million copies. And that's based on, like, pixel counting. I don't know if Adam came up with this number or if someone else did. But no. Basically, basically more... um, uh, CD Projekt released their financials, which a lot of people, a lot of companies do around this time of year. The A lot of companies have their fiscal year release on April, or starts on April 1. And then a couple of weeks into it, they a lot of companies give out the financials for the previous year and sometimes larger scopes than just the previous year. And uh, CD Projekt has, has historically shown data on like the Witcher franchise, giving that that's their main franchise. Um, but this year they actually had like, let me back up a sec. Previously they didn't have released any numbers at all. And they just kind of showed like, we released so much percent more this year than last year or whatever. Um, they like everything was percentages, but this year they actually had some hard numbers on their graphs. And while they didn't give a, uh, a written down number, like this is how many we sold based on the graphs, you can actually kind of read the graphs and estimate how many copies they have sold in each of the five years that the Witcher three has been on sale. And someone on Twitter, some did it first where they counted, like if this, if there's this many pixels to this line, which is the 10 million line, then that means there's this many sales per pixel and you can estimate and count from there. And he got total of 28 million. I actually did double check this just because I wanted to, to verify. And I actually got also right around 28 million. So yeah, 28 million is not a hard number, but it's an estimated number based on the graph that they had. Perhaps more interestingly, The Witcher 3 has sold more this year in terms of pure numbers than it has in the previous three in 2017 or 2016, 17, 18. Thanks, Netflix. So, yeah, it's largely because now remember fiscal year means that this includes like January through March, 2020. Um, but yeah, that Netflix series came out in like November or something like that. And they think both the release and just kind of the general hype around that series has, has improved their their uh, their sales and obviously the game's also been on sale a lot too so it's not not full priced purchases that people are making but it's in terms of numbers and copies it's selling a lot more because of that <laughs> i'm sure they're happy another interesting thing about this is that they showed off the switch numbers 
and like people have estimated from the uh, graphs that sold about 700,000, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's a late port that hasn't really been on sale. So it's gone for a full $60. So that's actually really good for like a random late port of a game that has had no other games on per series that's had no other games on platform. So I, I imagine that uh, CD Projekt's pretty happy with those numbers so far, especially, like, it seems inevitable that, well, it is pretty much inevitable that it's going to eventually break 1 million on the platform, which is pretty mm. good. Crazy Go CD Projekt. You know, uh, Witcher 1, PC only. Witcher 3 is on the Nintendo handheld. Just, how did this happen? But yeah, twenty-eight million. That's that's a big number. Very well deserved. What a cracking yeah. game! I remember. I remember a few years ago, people were arguing Witcher like mainstream, but now it's like you look at those numbers and it's like, yeah, Witcher's mainstream. Like obviously, it was keep, it's hard to get much more mainstream than that. And we've talked before. Yeah. Like GTA is probably one of the only consistent series that sells more. Or like, how much has Red Dead Redemption Two sold? I wonder. I mean, probably around that same ballpark. So yeah. I don't know if we ever heard too much about the Red Dead Two sales. It isn't jumping out of my head too much. I don't really pay attention to it that much, but I feel like I, it's a Rockstar I, game. I'm more. I don't know the specific numbers, but I do want to say that they've reported on them, and it and obviously it's sold well, like very clearly. But oh yeah, yeah. But seeing numbers like this for Witcher 3 really makes me curious to see like how well Cyberpunk is going to end up. Especially since that's like, besides like maybe Xenoblade Definitive Edition, that's like the next game and perhaps uh... the only other game that we know is. Okay, I'm getting this number from PC Games and reporting on 2K's release from last year. And Red Dead Redemption 2 is 26 million. <laughs> so it's probably, it's basically right around the same number. Well, that's um, time's old. I, I not, not as old of a game, but. Um, Venture Beat says Take Two revealed in February this year, 29 million. But yeah, and it's still in the same ballpark. Yeah, a couple more million since. So yeah, it's probably uh, past 30 million. Yeah, James brought up an interesting idea, though, that I've seen people kind of dispute. Like, do you think Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition will sell more or less than two? With the two arguments being, one, remasters never sell as well. But two, Xenoblade is a much bigger franchise now. So it'll be interesting to see how well. Like, So what is two at? Past well, sometime, past, somewhere past two million? I don't think it's past two million. I think it, it's it's over one million. I don't know if it actually passed two million. In fact, I don't know if we've gotten any major updates since. Because like the only reason we know that it sold more than one million is briefly it was like in the top selling like Switch games. Like, but that's because it was like one of the few like really big Switch games within the year of launch. So like it broke one million, which meant that because there wasn't many other Switch games to break that threshold, it was listed. So I don't know how much it's sold now. Well, it could have I sold guess, over I 2 guess million. But, uh, 1.7 million as of March of last year. So has so it sold 100,000 in the last 12 months? So yeah, it's probably it's probably with our just guess out of our ass around 2 million. Uh, so well, what kind, what kind of I'm actually on Nintendo's uh, top selling title sales units part of their investor relations site. But what kind of sucks is they limit it to like the top 10. So like 
Luigi Mansion 3 has sold 5.37 million units, but like anything lower than that, you can't get numbers directly from that site. That's kind of annoying. So you get like Mario Smash Bros. Luigi. Yeah, just up from there, it's Mario Bros. U Deluxe, Mario Party, Splatoon, Pokemon, Pokemon, uh, Legend of Zelda, Mario, Mario, Mario. Lots of Mario. Mario Kart being the I kind of want to know like how well Xenoblade does or Astral Chain does or Damon X Machina does. And I'm sure depending on the publisher, somebody can get You can get on that on like the on their quarterly releases but i kind of wish they were just on their uh, easy to reach url but they're not yeah yeah i i don't know if uh, xenoblade definitive sell too because um on one hand like you said it is well it's debatable if it's a remaster or a remake because there's like so many changes like it's again we've talked about this it's kind of blurring the line there which is interesting but uh, how many people actually got turned off by the 2 and Xenoblade 2's title? And how many people like jumped in with the franchise with 2 and then might pick up 1 now? It's, I, I, I don't know. Because like, in North America, at least, like the previous releases for Xenoblade, like, you had the GameStop exclusive print run for the Wii version. You had the new 3DS exclusive version. And then it was available digitally on the Wii U, but who, like, not many people... Wii U was a very limited player base in the start. Yeah. And who, how many people went out of their way to buy a digital copy of Xenoblade Chronicle to play on their Wii U? Probably not that many people. Yeah, silence. Yeah. And then uh, so, the other, the other uh, question, obviously, is if, if Witcher 3 sold, based on this chart, like around nine million its first year, which I uh well it, it released in halfway through the year. It released in May, so in the first six months it sold like nine million. I wonder where Cyberpunk's gonna land, because you could argue ten million. Uh, Witcher three, yeah, like Witcher three was kind of like a landmark release for the studio, and they've only grown since then. So is Cyberpunk gonna land at eleven, twelve, fifteen? I, I don't really have it. I do think I that Cyberpunk, really this is, I don't really have, this is mostly speculative, but I wonder if Cyberpunk being mostly first person is going to hurt it. Yeah, I was thinking like, that. I, I personally don't mind that at all. First person games are more maybe based on like, you're more focused on the world that you're in rather than the characters. And I think some people, and you know, rightfully so, validly so, they want to see how their character moves and interacts with other things. And you can't I, really... So. I don't think that's a major concern, if only because, well, Elder Scrolls is a thing. Fallout's a thing. And, like, Fallout 4 sold really well. Obviously, Elder well, like Skyrim, they those, keep releasing and they keep selling. Those do have optional third-person mode. My yeah, but you actually place Fallout. And, yeah, like, no, I, I was going to go the same place. Like, I think playing those games in third-person looks really awful. But I know there are people who, that's they that's what they prefer. And that's fine. Yeah. But it is a good point that Skyrim is a primarily first-person game and sold Game Busters as well. So I, I definitely think, almost guaranteed, that Cyberpunk will sell more in its first six months than Witcher 3. But is it going to be two million more or double? I really don't know. I, I don't have the knowledge base to really make that estimation. But Well, I think it it's going to be really interesting because for most console players, 
Witcher 3 was their first CD Projekt game. So the fact that it sold as well as it did on PS4 and Xbox, considering, like, how many people actually bought Witcher 2 on Xbox 360? Like, I'm sure people did, and I'm sure they enjoyed it, but it's like, most console players, well, pretty much every console player, except for a few people that owned an Xbox One, their first experience with CD Projekt Red was with Witcher 3. So all of those people that bought and loved Witcher 3 and all of those people on consoles that heard about Witcher 3 maybe didn't buy it, but saw how many of their friends bought it and loved it. Like, I, I'm really curious to see how well Cyberpunk does because it seems like if Witcher 3 was kind of like the breakout hit for, uh, for CD Projekt, it's going... It, like, we might have a, like, maybe, especially with the whole cross-generational thing, because, like, a big thing with GTA Five, I feel like, that helped it sell so well, is that you had the PS3 360 versions, and then, like, a year later, you had the upgraded versions on Next Gen. And we're going to probably see something similar to that with Cyberpunk. So I wonder if Cyberpunk might be, like, a sort of GTA Five situation for Next Gen, especially if they continue supporting it, because they've said that they're doing a separate like multiplayer mode later or something well they also mentioned that with the way xbox works is that uh, it's, the details are somewhat vague but like if you buy the xbox one version of cyberpunk 2077 even if there is a new version of it on xbox series x you will be updated to that it's it's hard to say like with the terminology here like is it going to be an update or will it be like a new version that you are like given a voucher towards already but if, if they exactly also sell works. retail like an yeah. xbox series box or whatever with cyberpunk 2077 right. some physical collectors might just want to purchase that anyway so i don't think that would be a huge percentage of people but just i can't see it being a, a i wonder it, it's weird because like it's funny, because there's, like, a few Xbox 360 games that you can buy at retail, you could buy at retail, that, ha that had backwards compatibility, and they had their own specific cases that had both Xbox 360 and Xbox One logos on them. I wonder if any of those games are going to get re-released a second time for Xbox Series X, and it'll have, like, three generations of Xbox logos on the box. <laughs> that would be funny. I do think just overall, vaguely stepping back a bit, it is interesting that The Witcher 3 was a breakout hit. Like, it, I don't even know how much The Witcher 2 sold overall. I mean, pretty good. Like, these games were not failures, but The Witcher 3 brought it into, like, the mainstream, like you mentioned. Um, and Cyberpunk being a different genre and a different style of game right away, uh, it's interesting to see how that'll take. And specifically with the fact that I'm not misremembering this, right? They did say that they're going to have a multiplayer mode after launch. Yeah, there, there's going to be multiplayer, but it's they haven't really said much about it. But yeah, the exact yeah, they're going to do that. that. That'll be yeah. a bit down the line, I think. Yeah, but like the whole GTA Five effect is like people keep playing the multiplayer. If people latch on to like Cyberpunk's multiplayer in a similar way they did for GTA Five, like looking at the numbers for Witcher Three, I and seeing like. How there is undoubtedly potential for cyberpunk to build on that there is the possibility that we see even more of a breakout hit with cyberpunk to like 
to the degree that it's like similar to what we've been seeing with GTA 5. And that's just fascinating because that would be a totally paradigm shifting sort of uh, success for CD Projekt if that actually happens. So not really a whole lot more to say on that. Witcher 3 sold a ton. Cyberpunk's going to sell a ton. We're still not 100% sure on uh, Xenoblade. I feel like that's kind of the most interesting one they, that's coming up 